Good evening, everyone. I'm Craig Calhoun, for those who don't know me, the director of the LSE. And as I'm fond of saying, one of the great things about being director at the LSE is you get the wonderful privilege of introducing people like Judith Roden, our speaker tonight. We have wonderful speakers on a range of different topics. And part of the fun that I have in this is knowing that LSE students and faculty members will ask wonderful, sometimes difficult, questions after the speech. Tonight, as I indicated, we have Judith Roden, one of the world's leading uh, psychologists who then chose to devote herself to leadership, first in academia, as provost of Yale University and the president of the University of Pennsylvania, and then as president of the Rockefeller Foundation. Rockefeller Foundation has long been one of the world's leading philanthropic organizations, but Dr. Roden has dramatically reinvigorated and, um, in a word that is sometimes used, the foundation recalibrated its focus <laughs> and shifted its work to leadership in some very new and impressive innovations in philanthropy and in the effort to provide support and assistance to ordinary people, communities, and institutions around the world. And this leads to the topic of tonight's lecture on resilience. Resilience has become a key theme for the Rockefeller Foundation, which has long worked in areas like health and agriculture, worked on cities, and recognized that across the range of different works, areas in which it works, the theme of resilience is crucial. And Judith Roten has now written a book on the uh, theme, which is available, and she will tell you a bit more about it now. And she knows just a lot more about it than I do, which means that I should shut up and sit down <laughs> and invite Judith Roden, the Rockefeller Foundation, to speak on managing disruptions, avoiding disaster, and growing stronger in an unpredictable world. Judith. Okay, great. Well, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Craig. It's a, a great privilege to be at LSE. Even after a decade as president of the Rockefeller Foundation, I think I still feel most at home in a college classroom, so this is terrific. Um, you mentioned my career at Yale, and it was during the time I was at Yale that I first began to explore the concept of resilience, but at that point from the perspective of a psychologist. At the same time, my friend and future Penn colleague, Martin Seligman, was discovering the field of positive psychology, which promotes understanding what makes individuals flourish, rather than the more traditional focus of psychology, which is on diagnosing and treating dysfunction. The answer he found was optimism. People who, don't, who are more optimistic don't give up. They interpret setbacks as temporary as local, as changeable. And there are those, about one-third of people, who show what he calls post-traumatic growth. In other words, they revitalize, possibly even transform themselves after a major disruption. My own work at the time was on perceived control and how it produced positive effects in areas as diverse as aging, eating disorders, and social successes. And I was reaching similar conclusions. 
I found the subject endlessly fascinating, but had explored it only through the context of an individual until I became president of Penn. Penn is located in a neighborhood in West Philadelphia where I grew up as a child. I remember strolling the streets with my mother and attending the local public schools, enjoying the thriving street life. So I was unbelievably dismayed and and disappointed when I came back and saw how deteriorated the neighborhood had become. Houses boarded up, one in five children failing in the local schools, drug dealers had moved in, businesses gone. This is when I began to understand that we could apply those same resilience concepts that I had been studying with regard to individuals to that community where strategies for how to bounce back from the slow-burning stresses of poverty or the acute shocks they were experiencing, like repeated violent crime, could actually become building blocks for community resilience. Then within the first few months of my new job at Rockefeller in 2005, there were a number of galvanizing events that happened. The 7-7 bombings in London, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. It reinforced my view of the pressing need to build resilience against the seemingly growing cascade of shocks and stresses that characterize our 21st century world. This has been a launch pad for what has now become over a half a billion dollar commitment at the Rockefeller Foundation over the last 10 years to help communities of all kinds, from cities in Asia to farmers in Africa to now 100 cities globally spanning six continents to build resilience against the physical and social and economic threats that, as I said, seem only to be escalating in numbers and frequency. exacerbated by three colliding forces, climate change, rapidly accelerating urbanization, and globalization. Today, I would argue a week doesn't go by that we don't see some kind of disturbance to the normal flow of things. A cyber attack, a new strain of virus, a structural failure or a violent storm, a civil conflict or an economic blow, And as I noted, there are also the slower-burning stresses that chip away repeatedly at the fabric of our communities and weaken our ability to bounce back after those major shocks. Persistent and pervasive inequalities in income and education, a topic very much on people's minds today with the Oxfam report. Failing infrastructure, air pollution, a lack of affordable housing. Crisis may be the new normal, But not every disruption has to become a disaster. By investing in building resilience, we can manage the unavoidable and avoid the unmanageable. Resilience, to define it, is the capacity of any entity, whether it's a person or a community, a business or a natural system, to do three things, to prepare for disasters, for disruptions, I should say, to recover more quickly and effectively from shocks and stresses when they do occur, and to adapt and grow from a disruptive experience. Resilience is what can stop the global community from doing what we're currently doing, which is lurching from crisis to crisis by shifting the paradigm from expending vast resources on disaster relief and recovery to a paradigm of prevention and return. Let me give you an example. 
One of my favorite parts of European travel is the rail system, something we haven't quite got the hang of in the United States. Um, I, it used to be, I think, that traveling by rail here offered the promise of fewer hassles than air travel. But that is certainly changing. According to the European Railway Agency, a derailment or a collision is reported every day somewhere in the system. Most of the incidents, of course, are minor. But when you add them up, they cause significant delays and headaches for travelers along the way. And sometimes those disruptions are quite severe. And often they are created by climate change. In 2013, a powerful storm caused extensive tidal flooding in the United Kingdom and Central Europe. Passenger travel and commercial freight came to a standstill, and it required massive repairs, 100 million euros in Germany alone. In Devon, a stretch of mainline rail to London was washed out to sea. But other disruptions are man-made. Some students in the room might be too young to remember But in 2000, a fatal train derailment in Hatfield caused a national uproar in Britain. The underlying cause of the crash was determined to be a lack of systemic integration and a failure of knowledge sharing among operating entities, which led to severe maintenance lapses and cracking in the rails. These revelations led to the formation of systems interface committees. But in addition, there are further changes in governance that are needed. All operations must share information and develop awareness of what's happening across the regions in real time so that they can adapt quickly if disruption occurs. There is some planning underway. The European Rail Management System is an initiative designed to implement a single standard for command systems and train controls across Europe so the trains won't have to switch systems as they traverse borders. A Europe-wide automatic train protection system will provide integrated, real-time data streams between the tracks, the control center, and the train itself in order to maintain speed and route status. If there is danger, the system can instigate automatic braking, and it can even delink from the failing piece. That kind of system would minimize accidents, permit even higher speeds, while significantly increasing traffic capacity. The cost of investing in a more resilient European rail system is significantly less than doing nothing or not doing enough, particularly when you factor in the social and economic impact of disruption. It shuts down businesses. It makes it difficult for people to get to work. It interrupts the flow of freight around the world, just to give three examples. I use the railway example to demonstrate the five core characteristics of resilience that must be in place in order to have a resilient system. First is awareness of vulnerabilities and assets. Resilient people, institutions, and systems have both the willingness and the ability to assess and take in new information and effectively to adjust to that information in real time using effective monitoring and feedback loops. Second, they are diverse and often redundant in the types of backups and alternatives that they can access. So if one part of the system is challenged, it can easily rely on another. 
Third, they are integrated in ways that allow them to share information, according uh, ensuring coordination across all the components. In other words, the left hand knows always what the right hand is doing, and they're working together towards the same outcomes. Fourth, they are self-regulating, meaning that if one part of the system fails, the failing entity can be quickly and effectively delinked to keep the problem from spreading. It is the difference between safe failure and failing catastrophically. Finally, resilient entities are adaptive. They have the capacity to adapt to changing circumstances by developing new plans or taking new actions, modifying past behaviors. The entity is flexible, in other words. It bends rather than breaks. Obviously, that just doesn't apply to railways, These are the characteristics that are shared by any resilient system or entity, a person, a business, a community, an entire city or region. But what makes building resilience different from disaster planning or risk management is that we see the returns in those investments, returns beyond just saving lives or uh, um, protecting assets in the bad times, although, of course, this is critically important. By investing in resilience, we see the creation of new assets, new kinds of jobs and services, greater community cohesion, greater transit and recreational opportunities. In other words, investing in building resilience yields a dividend in the good times as well, what I am calling the resilience dividend, the return on that investment that pays off in the good times as well as protecting us in the bad. In all cases, it means getting more outcomes from each pound invested, which is exactly what we need in times of austerity, like the time we're in. How can entities reap this resilience dividend? It begins with effective planning and preparedness. Let me give you an example. Two years ago, as is well known, two bombs exploded at the finish line of the Boston Marathon killing three people instantly and injuring hundreds of others. But the tragedy could have been much worse had Boston not learned the lessons from London's 7-7 bombings in 2005. Among them, that preparedness for any crisis is the key. We can't always be looking in the rearview mirror preparing for the last crisis. So prior to the marathon, for several years since the London bombings, The city of Boston had conducted drills for a range of scenarios, whether it was a hurricane, a storm, a flood, or a terrorist attack. From volunteers to first responders, from services in power and communications and transit to all levels of government officials, everyone knew what their role was in case of an emergency. It didn't matter what the emergency was going to be, and that's critical. So once the bombs went off, they were able to spring into action. Every person who reached a hospital and all reached a hospital within 19 minutes survived. Planning is critical. But if disaster does happen, recovery must not be based any longer on a return to normal mentality. If we build it back the same, we reestablish all of the elements that made us vulnerable in the first place. The Dutch provide us with a keen example. In 1953, when the North Sea flooded, it killed more than 1,800 people overnight. 
In response, Dutch officials began to build Delta Works, which, as many of you know, is a complex system that was completed over many, many years, many decades, actually, of dams and floodgates, of storm surge barriers, but also of natural and green infrastructure as the years went on along all of the coasts and waterways of the Netherlands. Not only does Delta Works <coughs> prevent flooding and mitigate the effects, but it has increased the quality of life and commerce as a result of the way it was constructed. It provides now for greater availability of drinking water, better recreational facilities, new transit routes, and obviously a greater feeling of safety and of place for the residents. It has also, the evidence shows, deeply accelerated economic growth as around the construction. Tourism has increased. It's a sight to be seen. But businesses are flourishing where road, new roads have been built. People are moving there. Housing has been built because recreational facilities are built and integrated into the system. That's the resilience dividend. And, and the Dutch provide only one example of many globally. The potential replacement of the Thames barrier would give London the opportunity to reap these same dividends. No plan should be considered that doesn't design a new barrier with multiple uses in mind, from hydropower generation to new kinds of transit links in new places to new recreational capacity, all for the same investment. A carb park in Hoboken, New Jersey, and one in Rotterdam uh, shows the benefit of addressing multiple problems with a single investment by putting a re resilience lens and framework into the thinking. The three problems that were addressed in each of the cases were a lack of green space, a pressing lack of, of parking for cars, and frequent flooding. Their solution provided underground car parks that used a new engineering technology that allowed them to serve as water overflow tanks during flooding, and then the surface area was built as green space and new recreational areas and the like. It's a triple play, three different wins for the same single set of resources invested. That's the resilience dividend. These kinds of changes during the rebuilding process advance the third phase of building resilience, revitalization, which begins in how the recovery process unfolds. In Christchurch, New Zealand, two earthquakes in the last five years have really raised almost the entire central part of the city. The mayors created new partnerships and networks that bring together stakeholders, decision makers, and experts to create community-based initiatives for building resilience. One initiative, a simple one, is called Gap Filler, finds innovative uses for vacant lots from public art installations to concert venues to pop-up shops and artist studios. As more and more buildings deemed seismically uh, unfit are demolished. Meanwhile, Mayor Dalzell, the mayor of Christchurch, has brought together community members in a very brave and interesting experiment in participatory democracy, based on the example of participatory budgeting in Porto Alegre, Brazil, that is used annually to determine some percentage of the city's budget. 
She decided that since they have to rebuild the whole city and they will redesign their electrical, uh, electrical, their electoral uh, units and their electoral divisions, let's allow the citizens to decide how to do that. And so they're redesigning every electrical electrical division, electoral division. A little bit of jet lag. I apologize. <laughs> electoral division. Um, to be as diverse as possible. They want to build community cohesion by not having a representative represent a very homogeneous group, but really building that kind of community capacity and a very different result. As a result of what is going on there, a very different kind of community is emerging in Christchurch. The young, the creative, the entrepreneurial are drawn there because they want to be part of this process of revitalizing, adapting, and growing in new and different ways, an asset that is so critical to building a resilient city. Another example, much closer to home, comes in the wake of the social upheaval in London in 2011 which, as many of you remember, led to more than 1,000 arrests and destruction and looting across the city. On the fourth day, you may remember, hundreds of volunteers came together to form what they called broom armies to reclaim the city. And they didn't just limit themselves to cleaning up after the riots. They contributed to many community revitalization projects in the weeks that followed, building the social infrastructure of a city, of a place, is as important, more important, I would argue, in many instances, um, to the success of the city and the resilience of that city as the physical and natural infrastructure. We saw that same spirit of volunteerism in London and to the large effort called the Mayor's Team London Program, which brought together volunteers from across London to welcome millions of visitors who poured into the city for the 2012 Olympic Games and made the Games the tremendous civic success story that it was. Team London actually continues on today and continues to try to contribute to the greater cohesion of the different communities that make up London, which not only helps to mitigate the potential for future upheavals, but improves daily life for so many citizens. London is actually quite sophisticated in its approach to resilience. The London Resilience Forum is proof of the city's commitment and the progress that's been made in the 10 years since the bombings in 2005 has actually been a model for other cities, such as Boston and Sydney, now Paris, as they cope with their own terrorist events. But there is much more that can be done to ensure that London is achieving a broader resilience dividend across their all planning, recovery, and revitalization phases, and that London addresses its efforts to really completely understand both the shocks but also the slower-burning stresses that are true in this city and, and in many cities around the world. Just last month, we announced that London was chosen to become part of the Rockefeller Foundation's 100 Resilient Cities Network. Each city receives funding to hire a chief resilience officer who is tasked with working at the highest levels of government to coordinate across silos both within the municipal government and to engage more actively and integrate the private sector and civil society throughout the community. Chief Resilience Officer is a new role in city government, and we have 
uh, cities from six continents participating in this. Someone who is chosen because he or she has the ear of the top decision maker and can act as a conductor for this disparate orchestra of resilience builders from law enforcement to disaster planning to economic development. As I said, the role will also interface with business, civil society, and community leaders to ensure that planning is integrated. Each city, through the chief resilience officer, will also have access to a platform of goods and services to help them implement resilience strategies that will be built from a bottom-up process in each of the cities. We already have two dozen partners who are contributing goods and services on that platform that the cities will have access to, from Swiss Re to Cisco and Microsoft, Nature Conservancy, the American Institute of Architects, just to name a few. And finally, the chief resilience officers will represent their cities as part of a network, exchanging best practices and learning from one another. If you think about it, a global network of 100 (laughs) chief resilience officers thinking through both the problems and the opportunities in cities around the world through a resilience lens. Uh, Just last week, the chief resilience officer in Ashkelon, Israel, put out a call for an emergency preparedness uh, plan because severe weather uh, was going to hit the Middle East. And fellow chief resilience officers from Melbourne, Christchurch, New Orleans, and Durban all shared their city's respective plans. Talk about creating a global community around this issue. Already, and we've only selected the first 70 of the 100, one-fifth of the world's urban population, 700 million people, now live in a city that's part of this 100 Resilient Cities Network. I've talked about specific examples of how resilience thinking is taking hold in businesses, in communities, in cities around the world. But what is most inspiring to me is the individual efforts. They continue to astonish me with their innovation and their ambition. I am also thrilled to see that in almost every instance we are able, in ways both large and small, to integrate among business and civic, academic, and public actors in a way I think that was not as easily possible even a decade ago. What I didn't say about my experience at the University of Pennsylvania when I first brought my intentions to try to transform that disadvantaged neighborhood to my board, um, I had a lot of pushback. They said it couldn't be done, that we should keep our distance, that it wasn't the role of an academic institution. Now when I visit institutions and academia or when I talk to corporate boards, I'm hearing more and more, where do we start? How do we do this? How do we really think about our role in building capacity towards a broader community? In the business world, this is so far beyond corporate social responsibility. Um, And let me give you an example, actually, uh, which expresses that uh, of a business example. And fittingly for a college campus, it's about beer, sort of. Uh, Bavaria Brewery, which is located in Bogota, Colombia, is one of South America's largest breweries. It's owned by global brewing and beverage company S.A.B. Miller. In the last few years, the brewery found that the cost of water from the uh, local utility was rising precipitously. 
the culprit? Upstream dairy farmers were clearing land for their cows to graze and clearing more and more of the land. Without the plant roots to hold the soil back along the riverbeds, a great deal of sediment was flowing downstream, disrupting Bogota's water supply and driving up the cost. S.A.B. Miller could easily have moved the plant to another place. The situation could easily have led to a crisis and the potential loss of a major uh, business, local business, for Bogota. But instead, S.A.B. Miller joined the local water utility and the Nature Conservancy to support the dairy farmers in adopting new practices, for example, purchasing higher-producing cows, keeping smaller herds, and protecting vegetation along the riverbanks. Through this investment in watershed protection, the water utility saved $4 million a year. S.A.B. Miller, as well as local households, saw the cost of their water decreasing. But that wasn't all. With better practices, the dairy farmers increased their own efficiency and livelihoods. The ecology and ecosystem of the river improved. Multiple wins for a single investment. That's the resilience dividend, and I think it's an allegory for what is possible in our 20th century world, where businesses and public entities and NGOs can apply their unique value proposition to collectively achieve dividends that benefit all of us while preparing us to rebound more effectively if and when a crisis hits, not just as a means of saving lives and livelihoods when the worst happens, but by improving the daily lives of our communities, our economies, and obviously our planet. We can't afford to wait for the next galvanizing event to move us to action. By then, it's too late. Rather, we must all do our part as students, as community members, as leaders of academic institutions, as citizens or governments or businesses. We must make hard decisions and make smart investments to take quick action on the front end so that if disaster strikes, and in this day and age, I often think it's not a matter of if but when, we won't just be able to bounce back. We'll be able to move forward and transform together. That, Craig, is the resilience dividend. Thank Fantastic. you. Well, at this point, I feel a need to paraphrase Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> Philanthropists may come and philanthropists may go and seldom change your point of view. The presidents of foundations come and go and commonly conceive of their work simply as administering philanthropy. And I think you see here that Judith Roden doesn't, that she sees it as rethinking the very role and inspiring the world to action. She's brought new ideas to the field, and she's brought them to us, and I think we should treat them as something of a challenge and a potential agenda. And I'm going to take the privilege of asking the first couple of questions in an exchange with Judith and then open this up to the floor for more comments from all of you. The themes I know are of core interest to a wide range of different 
units, the LSC, to the Grantham Institute and LSC Cities, which of co-sponsored this lecture, um, and each of which, in their different areas of climate change and urbanization, are working in integral ways on themes that um, are very close to resilience. And when I say point of view, in my paraphrase of Simon and Garfunkel, one of the things I think is key is that Judith is not just adding some points to an existing uh, way of thinking about the world. She's suggesting let's think about it differently, that resilience is meant to be a lens through which we can look at many different things and how they come together. And that's part of what's interesting here. So let me, um, as I said, ask a, a couple of starting questions. A first one, Judith, occurs to me that your, your title for the talk and subtitle for the book starts with managing disruption. And yet you're calling simultaneously, as I hear it, from, uh, for top-down and bottom-up work on this. And um, you're seeing in resilience a path of social change, um, not of recovery, which I think is key. Um, the, the kind of transformation that comes, say, when refugee crises and displacement are part of urbanization and then building new settlements. My question, I wonder if you would say a little more about how the top-down and the bottom-up intersect and how the wide range of people can be encouraged to think in ways about um, long-term change precisely at moments when they're extremely vulnerable and therefore tempted into simply finding security as best they can. Resilience is a concept that has in it really thinking about forms of governance and forms of leadership. As I said, it's about infrastructure, it's about social and economic well-being, but it's also about leadership and governance. And in many of the examples that I give and in the way we try to think about this in constructing a theoretical framework for how resilience operates, it cannot come solely from the top down. And that's why this notion, this elegant experiment in participatory democracy that Christ Church has embarked on is so important. We will never be resilient as a city without communities that have built trust with community leadership and cohesiveness not only for the bad times, but let me start with the bad time example. So there's a great deal of research data that show that when a crisis hits and there's equal impact, say uh, a heat wave has been studied, uh, the Rockaways in the New York coastline, seven communities all getting the same physical hit, the communities that rebounded most quickly were those that were most cohesive, that had built the kind of community trust that allowed neighbors to help neighbors. If you think about first responder, we, we typically think about the police or the fire, but actually the first responder is often the person closest to you, right. so your neighbor or someone down the street. And without cohesive communities, that doesn't happen. And what happens in those first moments after a crisis often determines the capacity to rebound effectively and recover in some different ways. 
Um, so in the crisis moments, but more and more what we are seeing in terms of building resilience is the kind of community capacity that really involves not being given choices or decisions, but taking and empowering themselves to take action. And that kind of bold leadership is critical, and it is, is critical to the fabric of building resilience. So to those of us who sit back and complain about what the government is doing to us, it is really important for us as citizens to begin action in addition complaining and taking action to activate the right policies and mm -hmm. have the right leaders is crucial. But it's not the end. It's really just the beginning of what being a more resilient person and participating in more resilient community building is all about. So sometimes I look at protests and I ask myself, and what will you do tomorrow after you've just gone to the protest, instead of feeling, boy, that, I feel great, you know, that was a wonder, and I really expressed what I felt. It's the next day. It really is. That's when you show up. That's building resilience. That's, that's great. Let me, let me ask a follow-up. When you refer to heat wave, I'm suspecting that you're thinking of Eric Kleinenberg's work, because I know you know him and his work well, and his book on heat wave is really interesting mm -hmm. in this. And he followed it, among other things, with a, a book on living alone and on singlehood and with work and communication and so forth. To what extent does resilience require, and is your book a call for um, not living alone, um, that is literally for a more social outlook? We've had a lot of um, discussion of highly individualistic models of autonomous selves, of um, economic actors conceived as individuals, of choice makers, mm -hmm. and so forth. Are you suggesting that we need a counterbalance in the sense of, of a lot more attention to building community in general in good times? Or do I hear in your link to positive psychology a claim that this shouldn't be an opposition? That it's not be more communal, less individualistic. It's that there's a different way to be a flourishing individual that um, will involve building those communal ties. All of the above. Um, I think it is absolutely essential. You know, Putnam's work really began the look, Bowling Alone, on the breakdown of those middle-level institutions yeah. that used to be the fabric of communities, the church, the PTA, the whatever that level between the individual citizen and the more formal architecture of governance. And I do think that that ate away at the social fabric and therefore the trust and, and communitarianism that is a critical part of building resilience. But in addition, each of us must be autonomous individuals. So maybe I can trust you more because I trust myself more as an actor. And the two really work together in greater synergy rather than being a, a competing narrative for what has to go on to build this resilient fabric. I'm going to ask my last question, and it's the one where I'm I'm worried I might not be following positive psychology and Marty Seligman, and I might be less than optimistic. The, um, <clears throat> this issue about the erosion of intermediate institutions and community and so forth is 
of course, one that throughout the modern era people have been pointing to. I mean, Montesquieu is sort of pointing out, oh, we're suffering an erosion of intermediate institutions. And it's pointed out recurrently by social scientists and a variety of others. And back to your subtitle and, and your talk in general, there's a reference to an unpredictable world, to uh, crises becoming relatively ubiquitous, so that rather than seeing the crisis as the exception, we should recognize they're going to occur a lot. We should be able to plan for them. We should be able to do better. What I wonder is what sort of concept of the modern era lies behind this. Is there a, a sense that um, crises and emergencies are becoming more frequent? Is this an, a suggestion that um, the center will not hold, that modern life is coming unstuck, and these are coping mechanisms in a world in which we simply are being more and more challenged. In the climate change example, um, is this, well, climate change brings higher volatile, a more volatile weather. Um, it brings extreme events, and we'd better learn how to deal with that. Or do you see us being able to deal with this and other challenges well enough through resilience to be able to create um, a world that will be less challenged to produce resilience? Um, you and I talked before this uh, session about the importance of testing theories on the ground yes. and really seeing where and how things were happening, um, both to gather more empirical data, but importantly to test theories against the crucible of, of, of the reality of, of life. Um, as we think about confronting climate change, many Western developing con developed countries have the luxury of thinking about mitigation, um, and we are doing it elegantly, and so many of our groups are focusing on sustainability and the like. But if you work in the developing world, you don't have the luxury of only thinking about mitigation because they are confronting those realities every day mm -hmm. of crises caused by climate change. And so I find myself um, struggling with having to make a choice between trying to make a future better and having to also try to fix the realities that are currently occurring. And I, I don't think we can make that choice. I think that our responsibility is to plan for a better future while helping to resolve the issues that are confronting people and places all around the world. And that's, mm -hmm. that's partly the message of this book and the strategies of how to do it. And my hope is, although I do think crises are accelerating, that it doesn't take a crisis every time to make a place or a person or an institution begin thinking this way. That if we can move from a paradigm of de relief and recovery in which we're spending trillions of dollars globally to investing some of that in preparation and prevention and mm -hmm. preparedness um, that we really can address both a better future and a more promising now. Right. And you did make the point about dual-use technologies, multiple-use things, that the same interventions can speak not only to emergencies, exactly. but to the rest of life. Okay, now is the opportunity for everybody to live up to the advanced billing as a strong audience. Do you want to call on people? Shall I call Oh, no, them? you do. I'll call, shall I call them two or three and let you answer together? Do you want to? 
I'll get a couple. Okay. okay. Um, all right. So the first one is the woman who's just over here on that aisle. I'll take a couple. I'll take them in pairs. So. Yeah. Oh, hi, Judith. Um, I should mention a small conflict of interest in that I work for Farm Africa and Rockefeller provide us some funding for a project there, for which we're very <laughs> grateful. Um, I guess... Then my question comes from that. I I just wonder whether the focus on resilient cities, um, which does address urbanisation, actually leaves rural areas less resilient, both by the flow of people who are better equipped to deal with resilience to move to those more interesting places, but also about choices that um, people are making um, that can be actually detrimental to some of those areas, for example, on flood defence. And we've seen that in the UK as well as um, in places in Africa. Okay, and there's a gentleman right here, blue shirt, has a computer in front of him. Yeah. Hello, thank you for your talk, it was really nice. Um, you both mentioned climate change as one cause for disasters, and the Rockefeller Brothers Fund just divested, and that's his way of the way to take action to stop the climate change or to help stopping the climate change. My question was when will the Rockefeller Foundation and the LSE? Follow this example. Um, I'll take the second one first. The Rockefeller Brothers Fund announced their plan to divest. The Rockefeller Foundation has already made those divestments um, without an announcement or plan. (laughs) I mean, with a plan, but without a formal (laughs) announcement. Um, And we're continuing to reduce. We we have managed accounts, so it's hard to get inside and under every account. But um, we are way under the goal that they uh, have announced and... I'm delighted that they're joining us in that. Um, You asked a very complex question, and I I want to answer it in two ways. One, cities will be home to 75% of the population in the next 50 years. 40% of the infrastructure that will be built has not yet been built, and they are the economic engines of every country. So... The focus on cities is really because so much action and energy directed towards them um, could really make a tremendous transformational difference in the the outcome for the global population. Um, But as I hope you know, Rockefeller does a considerable amount of work in the rural economies. And it is our goal, actually, to, by working in rural areas, to help stem the tide of urbanization so that not every villager feels the need to move into a city in order to gain a livelihood or or share in what we all hope might be more inclusive prosperity going forward. If I can take the liberty for a moment, I'd love to describe an initiative that we just launched called Smart Power India because it'll show you the the kind of work we're doing. Um, And it really is to address rural poverty um, in India, energy poverty and poverty more generally. As you know, there are 400 million Indians who are without energy in terms of uh, reliable electricity. And many of the development uh, projects uh, over 50 years have failed 
because once they pull their money out, the model isn't sustainable. So we began to think about whether we could influence how the markets operate to create a more sustainable model. And we've launched this initiative, which is building, and we've already many pilots, is using the mini-grid technology for alternative energies, which has now been pretty well developed, and depending on the region, we'll use wind or solar or biomass. And we took the American shopping mall concept of having an anchor tenant, and we saw the huge penetration of mobile telephony, even in the most remote villages of India that don't have electricity. And so we've negotiated with uh, mobile cell phone tower operators who are currently using diesel and they, we make contracts with them so that they guarantee taking somewhere between 40 and 65% of the capacity of these alternative energy companies. So we've guaranteed their anchor tenant. The cell phone tower gets off diesel, so better for the environment. And the remaining 30 to 40% is all the rural villages really do need for reliable electricity. And we're seeing microenterprise develop and SMEs grow out of microenterprise. So you can create with innovation a kind of virtuous cycle where if you think about all the elements of the system simultaneously and work to address each of their capacities and each of their goals, you really can create this kind of system. And so we're about to go into a 1,000 villages now, uh, and a lot of people are watching this model as a potential model for Africa as well. So... Um, we, we are deeply engaged in this kind of thinking. As Craig kindly said, my goal at Rockefeller is to continue to use our philanthropic capital, which is tax-advantaged capital, to take risks, to pilot, to innovate, to fund innovators, um, and to continue to push the envelope uh, in new and exciting ways. And then Here's a scalable model, um, and we're, we're very pleased and proud of it. This is great, because I'm going to get to introduce you to Jonathan Leap after this, <laughs> and he can tell you about the LSE's projects in Bihar on oh, electrification and alternative payment systems that are able to support this. And I think there could be a synergy here, Absolutely. which is part of the resilience story. Okay, the man in the blue shirt up on the right there, about halfway up. Hello. Um, thank you very much for the talk. Um, I've got a question that's focusing on one specific thing that you mentioned, which is the Broom Army um, in Clapham. So, um, I mean, it was a kind of in passing, I guess, comment, um, but I wanted to focus on it to try and open up a wider question that resilience might be able to answer. Um, and that is that I think that your description of it wasn't perhaps as nuanced as the reality. Um, and that I think this was a highly controversial event, and certainly the way that it was utilised in the press, by the mayor's office, etc., was highly controversial. Given the social causes of the um, social unrest in, the, in 2011, and then the sense that uh, Clapham is an area of sort of ultra gentrification, um, and then the kind of so what you know became social divisions caused by the sort of the production of a certain type of community that then excluded you know the outside the other and certainly excluded the rioters as such 
And I think that the question I'd like to ask is how can something like resilience be utilised in a social frame to not exclude and to not produce a kind of closed community, but to be able to actually include even the people that were sort of partially responsible for, say, something like those, uh, those riots? Thank you. Okay. Great. And next question, there's a person in row four here with her hand up. Glasses. Thank you. Um, Dr. Roden, I wanted to ask you to go back to your beginnings as a psychologist and kind of bridge the gap between individual psychology and how we as collectives deal with massive world problems, whether it be climate change, whether it be financial crisis, um, and how positive psychology or an individual psychology um, leads us to a better collective outcome, particularly in circumstances such as the developing country context that you um, spoke about recently. Okay. Um, maybe in answering your question, because you are more deeply familiar with the uh, local situation, I can refer to one that I know intimately, and that's the recovery uh, in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, to to try to answer your question. Um, Katrina caused the levees to break and the flooding, but it was the years and years and years of inequality and poor political systems and poor educational systems that really caused New Orleans to break. And so as it built itself back, it was the same metaphorically. Shall we clean up the communities, essentially? And there were armies of volunteers who poured into New Orleans from all parts of the world and lots of money or can we really think about recreating a different kind of society? The 10th anniversary is next year, and New Orleans has transformed itself. Much more cohesive and diverse kinds of communities, complete collective responsibility for the school system, a huge entrepreneurial and kind of innovative class of very different kinds of people moving in and connecting with one another. So I have seen around the world the possibility of that happening, but it takes community-based leadership. It doesn't take pronouncements from the mayor. In fact, the mayor failed in New Orleans um, in, in the first instance. Now, Mayor Landrieu is amazing, the, the subsequent mayor. But it was really those communities reanimating and using resources in a way that developed stronger communities. It is very hard work. It's, it's, it's not about the pronouncements. It's not only about volunteerism. And I use that as an example less to talk about the issues in the community and more to say that it, the work continued that came out of that original volunteerism spirit. But your question is right, and I, I'm not giving prescriptions. This is not a book or an area about prescriptions. This is a framework within which individuals and communities and cities need to figure it out in their own vernacular, with their own cultural history and, and experiences, and also their own set of resources, both person and, and material. So um, I, I, I don't minimize 
the importance both of the question and of the hard work and, and depth of concern, I think, that, that underlies it. Um, I think in the psychology, the closest linkage that I can make for you um, is really that at the individual level, how you interpret what happens subsequently is a significant determinant of what you do in the future. And that is as true for creating a collective narrative and a, a larger collective vision as it is for an individual. So we're in the midst of an in vivo experiment around that in Paris. And if I take as an example Oslo after the Utoya killings, um, there was a huge initial outpouring of Norwegian love and spirit and communitarianism, and then vitriol pouring out. This was also an anti-Muslim vitriol because the killer said that that was his motivation, the immigration policy and the fear of Muslimization of, of Norway. And the prime minister and many others stood up there and said, the only way we can be stronger is by becoming more inclusive, by reframing our narrative, by reinterpreting what threatens us is the enemy within, and that is the unwillingness to become more heterogeneous, to accept more people, to figure out the difficulty of diversity. He lost the next election. Um, but Norway is actually stronger. So the question for Paris is the same question. Um, great, great event that Sunday. Now what? Okay, let's go to the woman in row four and the man in row two over in this corner here. Yep. Thank you very much. Um, over the past couple of years, we've been looking at uh, global catastrophic risks, very specifically at pandemics and let me stand up. At Thank pandemics you. and conflict, and I agree with you entirely. All the world experts agree that preparedness is key, and community cohesion. However, when there is a crisis when there is um, a, 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 that sudden disruption, there is something else that comes into the mix, which is all the well-meaning um, agencies from around the world that come in to help, they don't always help because there is a fundamental, um, shall we say, lack of communication between them. And my question to you is, what would be, what, how would you suggest that that working together, that cohesion of those multiple agencies can be facilitated? Because they do it often enough, and yet it still doesn't seem to work smoothly. And we have made a lot of mistakes. Just take Ebola as an example. So if any thoughts would be appreciated. Thank you. Okay. Just in front, man with the beard, second row. Okay. Well, all right. It's open. Okay. We'll get you in okay, the second thank row. You. 
Later. Uh, good evening. Uh, my name is Alex. I come from Kingston University. Uh, I'm really excited to start learning how to be strong in a world where things go wrong <laughs> from your last book. Uh, nevertheless, I have a question before that. Uh, do you hope things will go right someday? If yes, why? Thank you. <laughs> um, in response to the first question, let me answer in two different parts of the question. So first, although we have been talking quite a lot about community cohesion, that's not the only element of resilience. So it's all of the other elements that are infrastructural, both hard and soft, that are governance-related. But often, without community cohesion, those, those uh, other elements aren't sufficient. Um, I think your point is enormously well taken, and we are uh, embarking on a very bold experiment. Uh, the contributors financially to it are uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, USAID, the, the U.S. aid agency, and the Swedish aid agency, CEDA. And we've chosen the three places in the world where the most development aid has gone and the most humanitarian money has been spent in response to crises with the lowest observed outcomes in terms of improvement. That's the Sahel and the Horn in Africa and the Rim region of South Asia that is coastal. And so we are going to try to bring together development and humanitarian agencies to begin planning together around a resilience framework so that development investments are made with this framework. And when humanitarian aid comes in, it doesn't destroy the fabric of what has been built, which is often the case. I think many argue, and I, I don't have um, uh, evidence of data except outcome that Haiti is example number one of, of that outpouring of caring and aid and and where is Haiti today in terms of so can we get a common framework that integrates both development and humanitarian aid working, thinking, planning through a resilience building lens we picked the three hardest places in the world intentionally, um, and we are uh, launching. We launched, however, interestingly, with a resilience innovation challenge. So we had responses from around the world to the question you posed, and there are judges right now who are reviewing those ideas and really thinking about, because we want to foster not only, and I say this with reverence in the hallowed halls of academe, not only the academically driven solutions, but what people on the ground are seeing and experiencing, and adding those two together, we think will give us a richer of ideas and, and more persuasive evidence, perhaps. Okay, great. Now to the man I was put on the other man with the beard in the near front. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks. I'm from the University of Melbourne in Australia, one of your other resilient, you know, part of your resilient cities network. Um, 
Your cases are very compelling, but uh, often for individual decision makers within an organisation, it's quite difficult to justify investment in resilience, either because uh, the returns in the future are uncertain or because the benefits are distributed more widely and don't necessarily accrue back to the organisation that's making the, the investment. So what needs to happen to accounting structures to build the business case for investment in resilience? Good question. There's a woman about halfway up on the aisle. Raise your hand. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Andrea Carpathy from Climate Kick, and actually my question is... I can't hear you. I'm sorry. Hold the microphone closer. Is it better now? Yes. So, Adria Karpati from Climate Kick, and uh, my question is very similar to the previous two about the metrics. Uh, how do you how do you calculate really the resilience dividend? How do you? It's already very difficult to to calculate the life saving and the assets protected, but this additional benefit of of the resilience dividend. Uh, how do you how do you propose to calculate that? because that would be a very important policy instrument for the future for, for cities, for governments to implement additional activities, I suppose. Thank you. And I didn't answer your question. Of course I hope. That's why I use the mitigation versus adaptation example in climate change. Of course we need to work to making things more right, but we need to confront the fact that right now they're not. And so we need to help... Ad- fix what's happening in the present as we work towards a better and more right future. Um, Let me answer the second question first uh, on the metrics. I think it is really critical to provide those metrics. I can give you one example, but I have hundreds. we invested in a variety of resilience building, planning, and preparedness uh, actions for the city of Surat in, in India. It, it experiences violent flooding when there's rainfall there uh, over the years has been considerable loss of life and livelihoods, uh, often leading to public health outbreaks that are that are quite severe and other uh, uh, bad outcomes as well. Um, One of the things that we were able to identify is that given the governance structure, the dam, which was upstream, was controlled by another government that determined when the water would be released, when the overflowing started to occur. And that often is what made Surat so vulnerable. So we developed a completely integrated system with them of early warning signs, governance that included citizen uh, warnings and citizen participation in decisions about dam release, as well as some of the government officials and the like. And the uh, 2013 rainfall was significantly higher than the rainfall that led us to begin this work in, in the mid-2000s uh, that led to significant loss of life and disease. And no one died. There was very little business disruption the second time. So a lot of metrics are able to show pretty quickly the benefit of that investment. That gets to your question, which is sometimes the dividend doesn't accrue back to the investor. So sometimes it does. 
but sometimes it accrues to another part of society or another piece of the system. And that's why developing both integrated planning, but also a sense of we're all in this together, is really so important. If what I invest in only is a return for me, it's probably not building resilience. All right. We've got two questions in the first row. The first, a woman in purple in the middle. <laughs> Hi, and, and thank you. Um, I'm reminded of a whole bunch of things. Um, one is you, of course, some of us remember Vince Lombardi of the Green Bay Packers, who said first, first, you got to want to. And I'm also reminded of, a, of an old light bulb joke that um, an Australian fellow who I met at a, after we had tea after a, one of these LSE lectures a couple of years ago. It's an old light bulb joke. How many Englishmen does it take to change a light bulb? None, because it's always been that way. <laughs> and what I'm concerned, I mean, I look at, I look at my own borough I look at what's happening in my borough, huge inequalities in my borough. Um, I look at what's happening in London, the rising homelessness, the lack of affordable housing, and the slow-burning catastrophe that you're talking about that, that I think a lot of us see, the um, councils that won't replace and repair boilers and plumbing because they actually intend to sell the property to developers anyway. And without that sense of, of you know, Lombardi's Gatawana, how do you, with the powers that be, because if the, if the, I mean, this is the city that had that massive anti-war march years ago, and it didn't, we still had the war, and, and all of this, it just doesn't seem like the people who need to listen are listening to the people, and the people who are speaking, I mean, there's going to be an election in May, and it's going to be very interesting, but Things are, things are crumbling here. And I think it's, I, there's, a, there's an attitude of if we ignore it, then it's not really happening. How do you, without catastrophizing, deal with you know, preventive? Okay. And the gentleman question. on the right in there. Yeah. Um, good evening, Dr. Rodin. Thank you for a wide-ranging um, Subject you, you've covered. It seems to be that uh, the word resilience runs through the whole lecture. Um, I don't know how you can explain the resilience in terms of uh, the disruption, disasters, unpredictable world. World is that the natural resilience to, to all these things, or the man-made things? I. My name is George Davies. I'm an Iraqi Arab. I want you to please explain to me how the disruption and the disasters has befallen Iraq, Syria, Libya, and other Arab countries, which are not, not natural, man-made, made by the United States, and continue to, to the dismay of the people who are paying a high price. You spoke uh, about the 100 countries of, of Please excuse me if I missed that point. Uh, what, in what connections? I know in Iraq, 
you are now providing the electricity generating uh, facilities by by General Electrics, but provided that you have that we as Iraqis have to pay uh, buy the spare parts from General Electrics, replacing the Russian ones, and that we and Iraqis we have to buy the seas from Monsanto and from Dupont. And please explain to me uh, that on what basis. Do you uh, include, you mentioned something about Israel, that point, uh, please, I didn't understand. Uh, and can you explain to me, you talk about resilience, can you explain how 50% of the Navajo uh, tribesmen are semi-illiterate uh, out of a job, and how the destruction and, and, uh, uh, of, the, uh, of Detroit and... So it's getting to be an awful lot of questions. Well, so, but please, please bear with me for a second. I do tend to uh, carry on. But you spoke. <laughs> I tend to carry on to the dismay to most people. Please uh, allow me to ask you, what's the connection of the Rockefeller Foundation? Do you facilitate wars and funding of wars you certainly did for, for the Afghanistan war and for Iraq. Thank you very much. Um, the, the last two questions are profoundly important, but I'm reluctant to comment or explain either the failures of the British political system or the American political system in the time that we have remaining. Those are important questions, and I think both of you have identified real failures. Um, and uh, there's not enough time in what remains, nor in my humble role as president of the Rockefeller Foundation would I attempt to defend the actions of the U.S. government or explain the failures of the British government. Okay. There's a uh, gentleman about two-thirds of the way up, three seats in. He's got his hand up. Yeah. And we're getting close to the end here, so warning. Uh, firstly, thank you for an excellent talk. Um, where is he? <laughs> oh, 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 thank you. <laughs> um, my question is, um, one of the recurring themes in perhaps failure or lack of resilience is the silo working or lack of systemic understanding of cities or any, any organisation. Um, and I just wonder if, in trying to address that and get <clears throat> individual bodies, services, um, organisations to work together and break down those silos. Are you getting any resistance, or are the chief resilience officers getting any resistance from, should we call it the security services, or the owners of those utilities themselves, who actually see that as exposing their weaknesses? So a reluctance to become resilient because they're exposing themselves to mm -hmm. their weakness. Okay. And the, um, on the, my far right, your left, there's a woman in black. Hi. Um, thank you very much. It's absolutely fascinating hearing you talk. Um, just to give you a framework of my question of thinking. I'm alumni, LSE, over 10 years old, and I did my master's at Cass Business School last year in grant-making, philanthropy, and social investment, and I currently work for a small charitable family foundation. So my understanding of philanthropy is both in academically and in practice, and I really value 
a lot of the Rockefeller papers, reports that are published about philanthropy, and I wish the UK would pick up on it and embrace them. You commented earlier about the, the project you, USAID and the Swedish Agency and Foundation are looking at about the new framework for resilience. I was just wondering um, if you are building or which UK foundations are working as hard as you are and embracing your learning and academically but and in practice as well because I think practice, there's so much academic theory happening and I just wonder how much the UK foundation community are welcoming this and working with it. Um, in answer to the first question, I think I'll refer to you, Ricky. Professor Ricky Burdett is here, and he has read, I think, virtually all of the applications for 100 resilient cities, 800 um, so far from six continents. And I think we're stunned by how willing they have been to expose their weaknesses and to really talk candidly. We are not selecting them on the basis of how resilient they are. We're selecting them on their capacity to become resilient. And the first part of that is their understanding of the weaknesses in, in what are the slow-burning stresses? What are the kinds of shocks? Where do they have strength and capacity? And the other part of the application that is demanded of them is they need to talk about how they will work with the other sectors if it comes from government or it comes from academia. And we've had, um, and civil society, we've had applications that had uh, in the lead uh, leaders from each of those sectors and others. Uh, so their plan for how to integrate is critical as they go through the application and, and challenge process. Um, I have read... 150 of them, or so, 160, and in that final group in our two rounds, uh, I have seen extraordinary searing candor, actually, with regard to the weaknesses, um, and so we'll see. Uh, the first group was only chosen 13 months ago, the second group only a month ago, so a work in progress. Um, I think there's a lot of reciprocal learning among foundations. I, I started my day at Nesta with Jeff Mulgan, and when I became president of Rockefeller, he was at the Young Foundation, and I really learned a lot from him about innovation um, and innovation practices. So I think we really are looking to those thought leaders among foundations and foundation leaders around the world who really are breaking old paradigms, who really understand the difference between philanthropy and charity, with philanthropy trying to get at the root cause of problems and looking for the innovations around that. Um, a question earlier about metrics is as relevant to this question. Often foundations don't share their failures. They promote their successes and celebrate their successes. And so we are part of a larger movement of foundations that really is advocating vociferously and actively to share where we fail. If we are risk capital, of course we're going to fail. And we need to understand it so that others uh, aren't making those mistakes. They'll make other mistakes with their risk capital. This doesn't apply to academics, does it? <laughs> <laughs> Judith, thank you very much. I'm afraid we're at the end of our time. The book is The Resilience Dividend. Read it. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>